before I get to word of the week, I want to announce some good news. I'll be hosting a special audio podcast on the COVID-19 vaccine as part of a special series developed by LeBron James's organization, More Than a Vote. It's a two-part special. One podcast episode is hosted by me, and the other one is hosted by my Spotify compadre and colleague, Bakari Sellers. Um, and the series will be called The Shot, History, Hesitancy, and Hope. One of the reasons I wanted to do this project is because I get a little frustrated with how the conversation around the reluctance in the African-American community to take the vaccine has been framed. It's framed as if this reluctance is paranoia or ignorance, when in truth, it has a lot more to do with how the healthcare system has treated Black people historically and also presently. Uh, anyway, I'll have more details soon and I'll keep you all posted on when that special podcast episode drops. Moving on. I realized recently that I might have to burn one of my favorite t-shirts. Now that's because there's a word on this shirt that has become not only overused, but arguably it is now the biggest dog whistle in America. And on top of all that, it is just terribly uncool because it was made that way by the people who have chosen to abuse it. I used to love this word, but now every time I hear it, it makes my ears bleed. Or as one of my girls used to say all the time, makes my ass itch. The word of the week is woke. The t-shirt that I'm going to have to burn just says stay woke. Now, when I bought the t-shirt, it was still a word that was primarily largely used by black people. We used it for serious matters. For example, the police are out here acting reckless, stay woke. Or for something silly, such as, you got to ask for no salt on your french fries at McDonald's if you want to get a fresh batch, stay woke. By the way, that's still true. Old school trick. Some of y'all don't know about that, but if you want the fresh hot fries, ask for no salt because they got to make another batch. Anyway, it was our thing. And then slowly the word started being used by those outside the culture. And now the word woke has become very popular among conservative politicians, racists, and by people who simply love to gaslight people over serious racial issues. Case in point, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is upset that Major League Baseball decided to pull this summer's all-star game from Atlanta because of this new ridiculous election bill that was passed recently in Georgia that he signed into law. It is the state's latest voter suppression attempt that is clearly their way of retaliating against black voters who played a huge role in turning the state blue. Now, in a statement, Kemp said, Georgians and all Americans should fully understand what MLB's knee-jerk decision means. Cancel culture and woke political activists are coming for every aspect of your life, sports included. If the left doesn't agree with you, facts and truth do not matter. Well, here's a fact. Kemp and the Secretary of State both said the presidential election was the most secure in the state's history. They audited all the votes, recounted the fuck out of every vote. But just like Smokey couldn't turn that $100 into $200 for Big Worm when Big Worm came to collect his money, Georgia's Secretary of State couldn't find, and I put that in air quotes, more votes for Donald Trump, which is what Trump asked the Secretary of State to do in a phone call. 
If the election was so secure last November, what changed? If Donald Trump had been reelected or if the Republicans in Georgia hadn't lost both of their Senate seats to Democrats, would this new election bill have ever been introduced? Yeah, I think we all know the answer to that. But I digress. Kemp is playing culture games by dropping both woke and cancel culture. Their other favorite buzzword. Mike Huckabee, the former Arkansas governor and generally an awful person, tweeted, breaking wind from CNN. Yes, he actually tweeted that. And even worse, he thought he was making a funny. Coke will announce name change today to Woca-Cola, which has been approved by the Chinese Communist Party and by the leftist loons who the company bows to more than their actual customers. Now, this was in response to Coca-Cola coming out against Georgia's election bill, as have several other corporations, including Delta, which is one of the largest, if not the largest employer of folks in Atlanta. And Huckabee's whack ass hit all the numbers on the bingo card. Woke, China, communism, well done. Byron Donalds, a U.S. House candidate in Florida, tweeted, Again, woke liberalism is ignoring facts and hurting communities they claim to be supporting. Kelly Leffler, the former Georgia senator, and it feels really good to call her a former senator because she lost in the runoff. And that's also part of the reason Georgia decided they needed some 2021 voter suppression because they still mad. Anyway, Leffler tweeted that Major League Baseball bowed to the, quote, woke disinformation campaign. See the theme here? I'll give Republicans credit. They are great at messaging and driving home certain key phrases to the point where they just hijack the conversation. Former President Ronald Reagan was able to successfully launch an attack on the poor and working class because of his constant references to the welfare queen, a black woman from Chicago who Reagan claimed used 80 names, 30 addresses and 15 telephone numbers to unlawfully collect food stamps and other welfare benefits. Reagan told tales of how people on food stamps were buying T-bone steaks and folks in the projects were living in housing developments that had 11 foot ceilings and swimming pools. I am not making this shit up. People actually believed it. The problem is that black woman from Chicago, whose case he cited over and over again, wasn't just someone who committed welfare fraud. She was just a straight up con artist who was married multiple times, had several different names, passed for white on a few occasions to pull off some schemes because she had fair skin. She tried to dupe a dead man's family out of $760,000. Her schemes were extensive, but Reagan never mentioned that because he wanted people and by people, I mean white people to believe that there were massive numbers of black people gaming the system because they were too lazy and too uneducated to pull themselves up by the proverbial bootstraps that they love to reference. Oh, so much shit worked like a charm. And even though white people use welfare and food stamps at a far higher rate than black people. Many of them joyfully stood with Ronald Reagan as he gutted food stamp and welfare programs, voting against their own interests because of racial pettiness. They'd rather starve themselves than sit with the idea that one black person might be helped by government assistance. I'm also old enough to remember when conservatives whined incessantly about political correctness in the 90s and how it was ruining everything. 
So this sudden addiction to saying woke in every statement is them just planting a seed in a narrative. Oh, look, everybody, the woke mob is coming for your baseball and your fun and your guns and whatever other straw man they can invent. There is no woke mob. There is no cancel culture, but there is accountability and there are consequences when you create a suppressive legislation based on a lie that is meant to disenfranchise a certain group of people, then you deserve to be called on your shit. Coca-Cola and Delta have decided to stand on the right side of history, though it took them long enough. And suddenly these same lawmakers who supposedly hate mob rule and cancel culture are calling for people to boycott Delta, Coke, and any other corporation that has decided to criticize this Georgia legislation. And yet I distinctly recall these same people vigorously supporting a Colorado baker who refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. A private business can do what's in the best interest of their business, they said. Well, right back at you. I don't ask for much from the conservative crowd, but I'm begging y'all. Can y'all please find a new word? Since y'all love to cancel shit, please cancel saying woke. The word of the week. Now on to today's show. Now, I'm not above bartering when I appear on someone else's show. And a couple of years ago, I appeared on my guest today's fine late night program. It was a wonderful experience, but I put him on the spot and told him that he had to appear on my podcast one day. He agreed, but life got in the way. And so finally, we were able to make this happen. I have so much respect for him because Doing what he does, entertaining a late night audience five nights a week is far more difficult than people know. He's thoughtful, funny, and a whole bunch of other deserved adjectives. He's an amazing performer who, before making the move to major network television, delighted audiences for years with his alter ego on Comedy Central. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, the incredible Stephen Colbert. So, Stephen, there's a new tradition on this podcast that I'm trying to establish where when I have someone of your stature on, I'm going to ask them this question. Tell me about the first time you felt famous. (laughs) First time I felt famous was I was still working for The Daily Show and it was it was fairly late in my daily show time because I left there in 2005, but maybe it was 2000 and it might've been 2004 and daily show made a big splash in 2000 with the, with that, with that election and the way John Stewart sort of changed the direction of the show when he came in the year before. But that show was really like doing a college newspaper. We were doing it for each other. We did not have it's, it's, you know, the grind is so continuous that you don't have time to go feel what it's like for an audience out there that's connected with it. So we, I went years, and I think John to a certain extent did too, like went years without really getting a sense of what the show was meaning to people until I went and shot something. I did a story about spring break in Florida, and I can't remember what the story is about. All I remember is it was the first time I had been in a location with like a thousand college students. And my producer and I had to run to get away from them because 
It's Stephen Colbert from The Daily Show. And I hadn't the slightest idea that that was our demo. Like those were the people who would be most excited. And it was a little bit like being like, wait, are we the Beatles? Like we had to get out of there and we were not the Beatles. But that's the moment where I went, oh, these 18 to 22 year old people are really watching the show. And I'm, I mean something. This, whoever Stephen Colbert is, means something to these people. And that, that was a almost, um, oh, it was startling. It was almost unbalancing to like on the plane back saying to my producer, what the hell just happened? What was that? And he goes, I guess more people are watching than we think. Because of The Daily Show, we never told ratings. It was basic cable. Nobody, like really, kind of by today's standards, by what The Daily Show became back then, really nobody was watching. It was tiny. We were like at a point six or something, you know, like 600,000 people watching was, was good for The Daily Show back then. But they were all 18 to 22. Why didn't you understand that was your demo? Uh, no one ever told us about it. Who did you think your demo was? <laughs> I never thought about demo in any way until I got to network TV because, well, ratings are not meaningless on on like basic cable. It's not quite the same focus. You know, the show got a lot of attention and I suppose the networks make some money through cable subscription fees. I'm not sure how that end of the business works. But all I know is even at the Colbert Report, when I was the, the head guy, once a year, somebody came in and talked about my ratings. That was it. That was, so we had no, there was no sense. And that's what kind of what allowed us to be adventurous in a way, because we were really just doing it for each other. Like what made us laugh? What did we care? There was no focus groups. There was no, we didn't get any feedback from the network. It was just us kind of like, almost like an orphan show. Like nobody paid attention to us and we just did what we wanted from a corporate standpoint. I mean, yeah, I, I, I totally understand this. Uh, it reminds me of something a producer told me a, a while ago um, when I had a, a show on on ESPN. He asked me and my co-host at the time, did we want to be McDonald's and have billions served or did we want to be the cute little bistro that everybody loved and came back to week after week, but it would never be bigger than the cute little bistro? And in your mind, you think you want to be a billion served, but to be honest... I think there's a lot of fun to be had when you're the cute little bistro that people just, you know, fuck with over and over again. And like, that's their favorite place. And they have all these memories or whatever, as opposed to like, oh, you're just somebody else giving them a quarter pounder. People love the quarter pounder. Don't get me wrong, but there's something to be said for that. Well, and the, the good news is, is that it's almost impossible to be McDonald's anymore. Just because McDonald's means everybody will go or everybody will drop. There's a highway that's going to drive past that restaurant and in in modern media, there really isn't. It's all it's everything's a bistro now because you there is no one central highway that drives past you know one row of restaurants anymore. That's that that model's gone. You might as well be a bistro. You might right. Um, I want to tell you how you uh, indirectly impacted um, my life, and uh, uh, and I was able to see one of the more startling things I think I've ever seen on television, um, or I should say specifically streaming. So I'm watching at the suggestion of multiple people. Uh, it's not a film. I, I don't know what exactly to call it. I'm trying not to give away too many details because I want people to watch it. What I was told before I watched this was don't Google it. Just watch it. The first 20 minutes might be slow, but after that, you'll be riveted. I was like, OK, this sounds weird, but I'll do it. I watched in and of itself. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, I just saw it um, in the last month and I told everybody the same thing. And everybody I told to see this 
we've all had the same emotional reaction. Little did I know until the credits rolled that you and your wife, um, both executive, produced this phenomenal piece of, how would you describe it? <laughs> it's very hard to describe it. It was um, was one of the reasons why Evie and I, um, along with uh, uh, Daryl Roth and Tom Werner, who are also executive producers on it, uh, the reason why Derek Del Gaudio, who is the, the the performer and the creator of In and of Itself, um, one of the reasons why we ended up doing it is that he, he couldn't get anybody to understand why it could be a movie. And he said, "How? Who?" He actually said, "Do you know somebody at Showtime I could take it to?" And I said, "Yeah, just take it to me, because I want to take this risk, because it is. It was started off as a theatrical presentation, but this film." that that Frank Oz directed along with Derek is not a film of a, a theater piece. It is an experience of what it was like to be in that theatrical environment with multiple shooting 50 nights of it all put together into a very elevated experience, almost like the balsamic reduction of what that experience was live in the theater. And Without giving anything else away, it's about identity, and and who you do see, who do you see yourself to be, how do other people see you, and when do those things come in conflict, and when do those things agree, and what are the emotions surrounding those two things, because so much of our human experience, but especially our modern experience, where we curate our identity, makes how other people see us a, an emotionally hot issue for us regardless of what your personal identity might be. And the film explores the necessity to see people clearly, to allow yourself to be seen, and what that has to do with love. That's a great description, yeah. I did not describe what it is you're seeing, but that's what it's about. Now, it happens to contain magic, but it's not a magic show. And it happens to contain audience interaction, but it's not an improv show. And it happens to touch people on a, on a deep level having to do with their identity and their own individual pain in many ways. But it's not therapy. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a self-help seminar. It's none of those things. I was just talking to Evie, my, my wife, about it. I said, you know, one of the hard things, because we're placing it in festivals and it's available on Hulu now, but there, 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 there are other things for it to, ways to be distributed around the world. And we're saying, you know, it's really hard because it's like, Frank and, and, and Derek came up with a new type of food. And people who are going to a restaurant go, well, is this an appetizer or is this an entree or is this a dessert? And they go, it's none of those things. And vendors go, yeah, but I run a restaurant. What do I tell people this is? And it's a real challenge. But thank you for bringing it up. I'm so glad you saw it. It's the most beautiful thing, I think, that I've been personally involved in. And, and certainly my, my creative input is, is small. But my, my pride of being someone that those two artists would trust in helping get this out to people is enormous. Uh, and I, as I've described it to, to other people is that it, well, one, I've told them, this is not something that you can watch and be distracted. And who, the person who told me that the first 20 minutes I would, might be slow, I was like, you were lying to me. They weren't slow. I was in from literally the first sentence in this film, for lack of, of a better way to put it. But it is an experience. It, I could not imagine seeing this live. I mean, as it was, I teared up watching it. 
right? And so I could not imagine what this was like live. Did you see this live? And if you did, what was that like? I did. I saw it multiple times live. The first time I saw it, I've several people uh, who some of the producers of my show said, yeah, I don't want to tell you anything about this, but I think you should go see it. And I went to go see it with my wife and my son. And as soon as I walked into the theatrical space, which includes the lobby, because you're asked to participate when you first come in about choosing your identity, I thought, oh, I immediately was struck with a sense of mystery. What will this be? I'm being asked to participate in something mysterious here, and I don't know how this mystery is going to unfold, but I immediately felt the mystery, and I also felt the invitation, which is kind of dangerous. It's like somebody, you know, somebody hands Alice a bottle, and the bottle says, drink me. That's what it sort of felt like. Well, what's going to happen? Am I going to get big or small? What's going to happen? And then by the time it was over, I didn't want to move. I didn't want to applaud because I felt like there was just oh, like a two-molecule-thick blanket of air around my body, and I didn't want it to move because a spell of of stillness and, and strange excited sense of peace was on me at the end because peace is often like ah oh, a release but this was an excited and, and energized i felt charged with the possibility of being known and knowing other people as they are not as i think i know them because one of the best things about the show and and the film that these guys have created is that it changes how you see other people in that theater with you. And I think the best art stays with you as you leave. And then you start seeing people. I see you right now over the Zoom call in a different way because I worked with these two guys on this film and saw it. And then when I went to go see it again multiple times, I was afraid the fact that there are magical elements to it would make the next viewings of it uh, diminished. And then I realized, oh, the magic is merely a vehicle to tell the story. The story is what it's about. And they're all true stories. And as, and as Derek says, I'm going to tell you a true story. I'm paraphrasing. I'm going to tell you a true story and you're not going to believe me, which is why I can tell you the truth. Your disbelief of what I'm telling you gives me a safe way of telling you. So you won't judge me because you, you'll know it's not real, but it is. And and for those listening, um, you heard what Stephen had to say about it. I could not recommend more that please, if you have Hulu, you need to watch in and of itself. Don't Google anything about it. Don't, you know, just allow the mystery and the intrigue to carry you. It is worth every second um, of your time. But one of the reasons I enjoyed it beyond just the human experience, the connection, seeing people differently, all those things you named is given the time that we are in right now. Every day, and I imagine you feel this as well as somebody who is in the profession you are in and who has delivers, um, you know, the news and information and entertainment to people. You wake up days and you're like, the stupid people have won. This is over. Like they've won. I don't. I don't. <laughs> like I got nothing. I mean, where's the hope? Where's the optimism? Where's all this coming from? Um, you know, we have racism and bad government and a pandemic all mixed together. And I'm like, I tap out, guys. So uh, for you, um, who nightly you have these, you know, criticisms and observations and critiques of what our society is going through, how do you maintain your sense of optimism still? My sense of optimism, I suppose, is fed by my low expectations for human behavior. And that might seem antithetical or uh, oxymoronic, but what I mean is humans have always acted toward each other in ways that are motivated by base instincts. Not all humans, not all the time, but there have always been times when we act toward each other with 
with base instincts, which I mean is fear, responding to fear, um, responding with uh, anger, defensiveness. I mean, that's why messages of love are so welcome because we needed like water as we go through the desert of, of how humans can, can often revert to a fearful, angry response toward each other. Um, the stupid doesn't bother me as much as, as the fear and the anger in response to the ignorance. Um, I, I'm dumb. I know there's so many things that I don't know. Matter of fact, when I went to go see in and of itself, you're asked to choose an identity. I picked a card off the wall and my card said, I am an idiot. That's my choice. And what I mean by that is that like to be able to sort of humbly say like, hey, there's so much stuff I don't know. And that's okay. And not to be threatened by the idea that I don't know it. To just accept that I don't know. And to have some hopefully humble response to learning more by first acknowledging that I don't know. So that's okay. So dumb's okay with me. It's when you don't want to get better and you, and you, you protect your willful ignorance that maintains your status, maintains your privilege, and you start making shit up in order to protect that position. And that's what truthiness was about, which I, which I talked about for years on the old show. Truthiness is a willful sense of ignorance to protect your own position because your emotional truth is more important to you than any reality or facts that could be expressed because it allows you to win. The idea of winning bothers me. I don't like winners. I don't believe there's such a thing as losers, and I don't believe there's such a thing as winners. It's only how we behave toward each other. You know I could very easily make a Northwestern joke right here, right? You, realize this. <laughs> you just left yourself so wide open, like, okay. That's that's how I learned that there's no such thing as winners, because I went to Northwestern <laughs> right, University. You went to Northwestern. <laughs> and I should know better that there's no such thing as losers, because I certainly lived it. Yeah, yeah, especially back then. They've gotten better since the <laughs> right. 80s. They have. And, you know, the other thing is because I get to do it with comedy and I get to I, my my Rolodex, my my the phone book that I have in my phone is filled with the funniest people I know. And I get to spend every morning with with uh, a group of younger than I am funny people who are hopeful that the world is improvable, that I get I get my energy from them. That pitch me in the morning is my favorite part of the day. What hopeful view do these young people about like what the world could be? Even finding fault in the world implies that you think there's a way it could be better. It's not despair. You know, being upset is not the same thing as despair. And, you know, and I have to link everything back to Lord of the Rings at all times. And, and Gandalf says that despair is only for those who can see all ends. You know, and even the wise doesn't know, know what's going to come. And the same thing. So I think really being despairing about the state of our, our, our nation or, or our relationships has got some hubris in it because you think you know how this is going to turn out and past performance is indicative of future results. I will grant you that. But um, as long as, you know, there's an opportunity as an individual to love other people, I think there's a chance for everybody to get better. Uh, you talked about how, you know, your morning meeting, like that's really um, an energy boost for you you know, uh, but I know the audience is too. So for you, what was this pandemic like as a performer and not having that audience energy that you're used to? What did that feel like for you as somebody who thrives off that? Oh, it was bad. 
<laughs> I mean, there's, there's the ordinary worry that you just have as a human being about what's what's happening, you know, with this pandemic and is your family safe and your loved ones safe and your staff and and what what will this mean economically for our nation? What does it mean socially? What does it mean to really like the the the, the direction of our culture? But as a performer, from a selfish point of view, I took this job because I really like a live audience. And it, this job had things that I like. I get to work with the people that I've worked with for years and grown to love and trust. I get to do it in front of a live audience because I really don't like single camera with no audience there and guessing if things are working. I like that sound the audience makes. You know, they make the sound with their mouth and you go, oh, that joke worked. They made that sound. And, and that sound is like an energy boost. If you have a good audience, you walk on stage, you walk off stage with more energy. Wherever you walk on, you come off feeling better. And with no audience, it's all just draining the tank. All you do is drain the tank every night. There's no recharging. And so I, I've, you know, we've done it about a year. I'm about done. I'm ready. I've wanted the audience from day one, but I think I, I've, I've run out of my ability to imagine how this might play. I run out of my ability to imagine how much I would have enjoyed to be in the room with my staff, my writers, my producers, my graphic people, my research people today. And um, as somebody, it's, you know what, you're like a musician. You've spent your whole career learning how to play a violin. And somebody goes, go out there and play the violin. Where's the violin? Oh, you can't have the violin. You have to play it without touching it. That's what it's like to not have an audience. It's like you don't get to have your instrument because the because the, the job is really about your relationship with them. What you're saying in a way is immaterial. It's your relationship with the audience, that community that you're creating. And it's uh, at first, first two weeks, I'm like, I can't possibly do it. And God bless my wife, Evie. She just looked at me and she goes, you'll figure it out and walked out of the room, which was the best possible thing to say. She didn't pet me. She didn't say, oh, she had, you'll figure it out. And she was right. We figured it out. Yeah. But during that time, even though you miss your instrument, what would you say that you got better at as a host during the pandemic? Uh, interviewing people. I got better at just having a conversation because there's no other choice. And we, we actually started interviewing people without actually doing an intro. I would just welcome them over Zoom and just start talking and do the intro later. Because I wanted to start with that thin edge of the wedge. You know what I mean? I wanted to ramp up in a human way. Because what I, what I found was that you would say hi to someone and go, okay, the interview is about to start. And then a totally different person would show up seconds later when you started the interview. But now, and it's informed me about the way I approach a guest now, just to, to start off in some ways, gently and humanly and with no pressure of performance. Of course, it helps that there is no performance to be done. The, the audience isn't observing us. And so, you know, observation changes the observed, I think, is part of the uncertainty principle. And that that human being who is the actor or the or the or the writer or the politician on Zoom can maintain that humanity that then is very intimate for the audience at home because it was an intimate conversation with the two of us. I don't know how to do that when we get back, but I know I will. I know that is the most valuable thing that I have gained from it. That and all the time I've spent with my family because my family were my crew. And, and Evie is my only audience. When she's there, I'm a better, I mean, she's like an audience. She's the person I've always wanted to make laugh. And so knowing, actually mixing those two worlds, 
not, having not quite a such a bright line between the life I love and the thing I love has been really wonderful. I've worried about this part of it myself when we fully come out the pandemic. Have, are you concerned that you've been institutionalized being at home that I think so many of us have adapted different habits at home. Like I'm so used to now, you know, if I can overshare, uh, Stephen, I'm so used to like not really having to wear a bra every day for you. I'm wearing one. I'm honored, but <laughs> I'm just saying, right. I'm just saying that like, there are just certain habits that I have picked up in the pandemic that I'm like, man, I, I actually got to put on pants. Like this is, uh, I, I don't know. I think that, well, Hey, that, that, that interview style, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna be worried about like can I really get back to finding this kind of rhythm with the guest in front of an audience because the audience is the third player there. You got to listen to the guest, but you also got to listen to the audience. That's a, that's a skill, you know. There's something athletic or I mean, as I said, musical about it. I haven't picked up the violin in a while, and I don't know what my fingering is going to be like. But um, with no audience there, I don't have the audience's energy, and I mess up all the time. And we keep a lot of it in on the show now. Like if I mess up, we just, ah, I just mess up. I'm not going to be that happy about messing up in front of 450 people, you know, because if we really think it ruins the rhythm of the moment, we can go make an edit right now and go, okay, we got to keep the rhythm of the moment or the rhythm of the argument as I'm making in front of a live audience. You don't have that kind of buffer. You got to be, you got to be there for them and, and, and always be on and never be in production or editorial mode. I can wear both hats at the same time right now. I'm going to miss that. I mean, or rather, I'm not sure how I'm going to deal with coming out of that on the other end of this. And I would say the last one is I'm not sure if I'm going to want to wear a suit again. Mm, the suit might be buried, huh? I mean, I got some really nice suits. And uh, first of all, I got I'm I, I weigh the same amount, but I don't think it's in the same place anymore. <laughs> I think we've had a redistribution of the wealth in my body, if you will. And I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. You know what's gonna what's gonna happen when I when I put on that Hermana uh, Gildo Zenia again, but uh, I think if there's an audience there, I'm gonna want to feel like a host and put it on in the tie and get a nice haircut and everything. But right now, I just can't imagine. I love just like all I do is change my shirt every night. I wear the same pants. I wear slippers. People don't even see it. I was wearing slippers on the show last night. You can't see because it's a podcast. But I got I got I got my slippers on my little furry slips. Oh, trust me, when we do the video uh, clips to tease on social, we're going to absolutely make sure that we show the, those slippers. They look quite comfortable, by the way. I must they say. are. These are actually super fancy. These are, if you can see right there, they're close. That is a symbol of the empire. These are Darth Vader. These are nerd slippers, man. Yeah. These are Darth Vader slippers. This is, this is supposed to look like his chest plate right there. Oh, it's good stuff. <laughs> well, I, I can't wait to learn uh, more about your house habits because I have more questions to ask. But uh, we're just going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with Stephen Colbert. So stick around. So I know this next question is probably going to be a little bit difficult because it was so many moments, but I, I wanted, you know, to ask you, um, what do you think was the worst moment of the Trump presidency? The combination of what was his worst moment that you then go on air to try to make sense, you know, kind of for people. What would you say was kind of like relaying to the audience like this is some terrible shit. That is an all you can eat buffet. 
I'm going to name several just off the top of my head without like being, and then maybe one of them will rise, uh, rise to the top here. I would say finding out that he had won the election on election night in 2016 was pretty terrible. We were live. There was no getting the camera off me. It was on showtime. There was no commercial breaks. The camera was just on me. There was no escaping my emotional reaction in that moment. And I had a monologue at the end, the end of the show. And I, I ended up throwing almost the entire thing away and just improvising. So improvising is quite the word, just speaking from the heart for the last 10 minutes of the show and eventually finding my way to what the comedic premise of the end was. And that, that was a terrifying moment to be part of. But I also knew that there was nothing to do other than just feel it because what else are you going to do as an artist, but just feel it back at the audience. And the, the unsung hero of that moment, the, the MVP was my longtime prompter operator, uh, Michelle Decker. She followed me on the prompter, seeing if there was any point at which I was going to dip back into the script. And she was sliding up and down and she seamlessly knew where I was going. She seemed to somehow sense without ever talking about what part of the script I might keep and was always there. She could feel where it was. And that's an interesting dance that people never get to see. But I know that everybody who does this has to have like an intimate relation with that person if they're ever going to go off script. I would say any of those moments that were not related to Trump specifically, but were moments of tragedy that uh, mass shootings um nightclubs in florida or schools uh in florida or uh places of worship um around the united states uh, uh businesses like any of those moments because the, the mandate we have for ourselves is what is the national conversation today everybody has a feeling about it i'm going to go on stage tonight i'm going to talk about well what was my feeling about this thing that we were all feeling about because feeling is really first we make you know arguments and we have rationales but it's all about how we feel today. That's what the show is about. That under his administration was additionally hard because you, you can't really make jokes about tragedy and you want to approach it sensitively. But also, he's of no help whatsoever. He is he is in no way you can point to with Barack Obama or even with George W. Bush. You could actually gesture toward this reaction from someone whose job it is to be some sort of national consoler, because certainly not mine. but. But he, there, that there's an absence of a moral center to the United States under the Trump presidency. So anytime there was a moral crisis for America, whatever it is, he, I, I desperately missed that person to be able to point at. And in terms of himself, again, there are there are way too many of them. But I would say two days after the election, when he went on and said, let's make no mistake, you know, I won, you know, I won. This is all rigged. That shocked me. We'd already done everything in the show except the monologue because sometimes for technical reasons because of guests we have to do it backwards and we'll, i was about to do the monologue and he he went on and gave that press conference and what shocked me was that i did not know as as little as i expect to get what i think is proper leadership in that direction i was quite surprised that i was heartbroken by it i i didn't realize i had that left um just for the office itself and uh, that might have been the hardest night specifically related to him. And and the odd thing about it is that the very first night he was elected, I couldn't sit down that night. If you look at the film for Showtime, I can't sit down. I talked for 10 minutes standing up. And that, that the last night that I talked about him specifically, because I haven't said his name since that night, is 
on the show, you know, is I couldn't sit down and I didn't know why I just can't sit down. It wasn't later until I realized, Oh, the very first night, the very last night, I'm just so mad. I'm so heartbroken. I just sitting down seems too passive. So, you know, that's a long answer and there's so many different times in between, but I would say those two nights were the, the hardest associated specifically about what he meant to the damage that could be inflicted by such a moral void on our nation. In prep for this interview, I actually went back and watched the, I, I believe this is the only interview with Trump that you've done. Was it 2015? Yeah, I had met, I had met him before, but that's the only time I interviewed him. I, I read that you said that um, of all the interviews that you had, that's the one you would not do again, as in interviewing him again. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, yeah, even more so. Even more so, I think. I, I think I think it might be irresponsible to give him attention. Yeah, you know, that's why I don't like we're we're, we're going to deal with the effects of his presidency. Um, I mean, even say even though the recent like rise of 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 threats to the Asian American community is like it, it's the tail that the tail off of his presidency. That's the stink in the room that's going to take a while to clear out if we make the effort to do so. Um, and along with many other things, but um, so there's no avoiding him as a subject but he shouldn't be a central subject because i i I think that merely empowers um empowers him in some way so that's why i don't like saying his name or showing his picture or stuff like that if, if possible um and i've paid my debt to that already um but specifically just as now let's put that aside just as a host this is kind of boring in the same way that o'reilly was kind of boring because they're one way with their crowd and then they come to your crowd and they play the reasonable man, you know, which is really a form of cowardice that that that's a con man manipulation. That's what struck me about the interview that how reasonable he was. It was not the same Trump that we were used to kind of seeing. It wasn't the guy saying Mexicans are sending rapists. It's not that guy. No, he wasn't. Uh-uh. My brother Ed was there that night and my brother Ed came up to me afterwards and he goes, you know what? That's not a dumb guy. He knew that he couldn't play that game with this audience and get anything out of it. But I don't really want people who are going to play any kind of game with my audience. I just want them to express the thing that they're famous for. That's it. If you've got the balls to say someplace else, say it here. That's essentially why he's not worth talking to, because he's essentially boring. Because you always know what he's going to say, even if he is himself, you already know what the answer is going to be. Even if he was to cut loose, he wouldn't ever say anything that surprised you, only upset you. And who wants to do that? Uh, fair point. Um, of the many things we are left to deal with in the wake of his presidency, although I would argue that this was an issue beforehand, but now we're looking around at the after effects and the wreckage left by the presidency. And one of those is was what has just basically happened to our democracy. What are your thoughts on whether or not our democracy, do you feel like it's bent, it's broken, or is that a point where it, it might not even be salvageable? Oh, I, I think it's salvageable because the nature of a constitutional democracy is that it's meant to be it's meant to be changeable. Whether we will, I don't know, but certainly the founders built it with a mechanism to change it if you wanted to, if you, if you had the will to do so. It remains to see whether we do. For instance, like the Senate is the least democratic aspect 
that contains the least democratic tool, which is the filibuster, which results in the American Rescue Plan just got passed with a 50-50 vote or 49-50 vote. But the people who voted for it, that half voted for it, represent 45 million more people than the other half. So there's something broken there. That's that's clear. And, you know, whether you I'd be afraid to open up the Constitution to change it at this point. I feel like the Constitution is not even a life raft. It's like a bubble. We got to keep it safe for like the the toxic sludge that's floating. And if we go in there to try to fix it, that sludge is going to get into the Constitution is what worries me. Um, I, I've given hope by the number of people who've turned out to vote. That's not insignificant. More people voted than in, than in a higher percentage, not even more people, higher percentage than over 100 years. That's got to give you some hope that people haven't given up on it. And democracy is only the people. So if the people haven't given up on it, you have no right to give up on democracy. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I, I think the concept still works, but I think the constant undermining of it. I just wonder when what what's going to give. I like to think that the will of the people will prevail. But when you look at the level of unabashed voter suppression, like conservatives aren't even trying to hide it. Like it, they're not even trying to gloss up what it is. They're actively trying to make sure less people vote. They are saying this is a game and we have to level the playing field. But that's not how the democracy works. Sometimes the people who don't get as many votes shouldn't win. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's just how democracy works. Uh, but you're right. It is absolutely shocking the degree to which they're willing to be bald about it. Just say it out loud that the idea is not quantity of votes. It's quality of votes. Do we really want all those people voting? Really? And that's not new. That is not new. It's merely more overt now. I remember in 2000. Either 2000 or 2004, I can't remember. I did some radio show. John would do the big interviews and the and the correspondents would do the small the smallies. And I did a bunch of drive time. Get up early in the morning, I'd do a bunch of drive time, you know, around the States. And I did a drive time guy in Chicago. And he and his, you know, zoo crew were joking about what's the point if the Democrats are gonna pe- put people on buses, you know, and get them to the polls. And I said, Oh, you're fascist. And, and it was almost like I almost said, like, oh, shit, I understand. Oh, you're a fascist. I get it, where you're coming from. And they really took that hard. And the interview ended right there. And I had called later to John because, you know, he he has to deal with the ramifications of whatever we would do. And I said, hey, I'm sorry. I called this guy a fascist on there. And he goes, what what happened? I told him, he goes, oh, no, you're right. He's a fascist. Don't worry about it. So this isn't new. This isn't new. But the the overtness of it is odd. And the fact that 45 percent of the country is OK with it is upsetting. So what I'm wondering and, and help me understand is I can't understand what the I know what the, the long game for the Republicans is, is power. So I know what that is. Right. But I think about where does this party go from here? Because what they have dug into, you, you can't separate from. Right. So they have decided we're doubling down on voter suppression, on white supremacy, on appealing to grievance of, um, you know, white fragility. Like that's what they've decided is the message. They've chosen that rather than coming up with a better vision for their party or for for the country. Because my whole thing is that if you really believe you're the better party, then why can't you appeal to more people? 
And if you can't appeal to more people, like they actually don't want to compete for votes. They're like, no, we don't want to compete for votes. We don't want to come up with another plan. And so how is this party going to survive with this mentality that we see now? I don't know that it will. I, I don't know that it will. It's like parties don't last forever. You know, the Democratic Party may not last. Nothing is guaranteed. I mean, the Democratic Party could go through its own fracturing. It's it's a, it's a fragile coalition at all times. And so uh, that's why it's in some ways it's difficult for them to main, maintain power, even though more people identify as Democrats, because they're they're it, it's not a, it's not monolithic. I don't know. There are no Whigs anymore. Someday there may not be Republicans. doesn't mean that there shouldn't be Republicans, but you just can't sustain a party if you don't have a, literally don't have a platform. Like li- there literally is no platform. There literally is only one leader. And that man literally is incited an insurrection. I'm not, I, there are people, there are people like Liz Cheney and Kinzinger and people like Sass and, and people like Flake who, who might have another chapter in his political career who have laid the bet that this, this isn't going to last, that Trumpism is not a thing that can last. But um, what that ends up making that party, I don't know. I'm not privy to their thoughts. I do know that Trump is merely the apotheosis of what was happening already. Like he literally took, I don't know, I'm going to say took, he literally said things that came nearly word for word out of my old character's mouth from the Colbert Report. Like, you know, I think with Mike's gut. Are you saying he plagiarized you, Stephen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He better lawyer up. He's just an extension. Nothing about nothing about what he said surprised me. It all seemed like an extension. Like all of this was, I'm no prophet, and I predicted him. Yeah, I mean, he, he was inevitable. Um, it, it was not, he was not a outlier. He was just merely the continuation. So uh, that part, I think people, hopefully they understand now. Uh, you're somebody who um, really is open about your faith. And do you still teach, uh, uh, was it was it Sunday school or Bible study? Uh, Sunday school or Catholics call it CCD, you know, catechism. We call it Sunday school uh, too. But um, no, I only did that for three years. I did it, I, I, I subbed in for some people, but I did it for three years uh, for the the second year each of our children went to Sunday school. Because it started off because my I'm a Catholic, my wife's Presbyterian. She's like, what are they teaching him in there? And I said, I don't know. Why don't I go do it and and find out like what the agenda is here? I said, I'm guessing it's Jesus, but let's go find out. And so that's what it was. It was Jesus. And uh, it is great. I mean, teaching Sunday school is like talking to interns at a television show. I love talking to the intern class. We get them together at the end of each of their intern, like every three months, because they ask great questions, very basic questions, the same kind of questions you were asking when you were their age, wondering, well, what am I going to do with my life? And it makes you reexamine, okay, why do I do this job? Or what's good about it? Or what's the challenges about it? It's really a good way to sort of refresh your own interest in what you do. Same thing for Sunday school. Man, seven-year-olds ask great questions. You think you're all cool, sophomore in college, getting high, asking these questions about God and eternity. They're asking those at seven. They're like, well, if God is eternal, what happened before time? And I like, you're drawing Venn diagrams about eternity and the kids are hanging with you. It's great. It's wonderful. Did they ever stump you though? All the damn time. What came before God? What are you talking about? It's great. But I also, I also really love you get to reapproach beautiful stories. Like, man, the prodigal son is a beautiful story. 
about forgiveness and love. How do you think your faith has added to your ability to perform? Well, I was an altar boy for a long time, and I kind of felt like it was a stage. You know, I really liked being up there. I didn't mind being looked at, you know, especially if there were some girls I thought were kind of cute. And I got to hold the, the little patent underneath their chin while they're taking communion. That was kind of fun. But I like the, uh, I mean, the mass itself is a play. You're recreating the Last Supper every time. That's what it is. The mass is literally means the, the table, the meal. So that's one small way. The other way is, I mean, everything has to do with love eventually, I suppose. And I guess my faith calls us to love and to have a sense of togetherness. And that's that's what you're trying to create with a live performance is you're exchanging some kind of food with each other. You know, there is a there's a communion there. You're creating a community and and what you're or you're exchanging is a sense of agreement uh, uh, or or an emotional understanding, even if it's not agreement, laughter takes away fear, you know, and fear allows you to feel all the other emotions that fear is trying to protect you from fear and anger. Those are really protecting you from another emotion or anger is certainly protecting you from expressing your fear and your fear and fear is the mind killer that keeps you from knowing or feeling anything else. There's only the fear. And so if you can make people laugh, you can take away the fear for a moment, which takes away the anger, which allows them to feel and be open to the idea of community. Because um, fear is also always individual and it, and, it, and it makes you isolated. So I would say valuing love and community, which I got through my own religion and my own, my own faith in God. And also the idea of forgiveness um, makes you feel like tomorrow can be better, not only for the world, but for yourself. Um, is an important part for me as a performer. It reminds me of something, what you said reminded me of something Michael Eric Dyson told me on this podcast when he said the older he gets, the more grace that he needs. Sure. Yeah, when you were talking about it teaches you forgiveness. When you said that, that is what immediately came to mind. Um, allow me to be a really shitty host. Um, I have one question for you before I get to a game that I play with all my guests. The question itself is not shitty, but it's one of those questions that usually comes at the beginning of the interview and not the end. But I'm so damn curious about it that I, I have to ask you. You were, at least based off everything that I read and even watching interviews that you've done that have been focused on you, is that you were an introvert um, as a kid and seemed like growing up to a certain point. How does somebody, and I'm aware of the, the family tragedy that you suffered, but how is somebody who was once an introvert grow into being such a comfortable performer? I mean, I know it wasn't one thing. I know I'm sure it was probably plenty of little experiences, but I'm just wondering how you kind of overcame that part of it to grow to love acting and performing. I I, I am not, it's, it's paradoxical, but I don't think it's necessarily a, a unique thing to be an introvert and to be a performer at the same time. Because certainly it, in character allows you to maintain your own uh, private identity while you're inhabiting some other identity. I, I know one of my favorite interviews, but famously kind of a difficult interview is Robert De Niro, who is very private and seems very introverted. He doesn't seem to get his value from how somebody else is feeling about him at that moment. 
you know, so I don't think I'm alone in being an introvert, being a performer. I think it's two different things. I think as a very young child, I wasn't an introvert. I think as a very young child, I was an extrovert. But after the death of my father and my brothers, I think I experienced like as some sort of psychic collapse. I think I became an introvert. I think I retreated in many ways. I think I took great value in the fact that I could go places in my mind where no one could follow me. And part of that was books. And part of that was just my imagination. And part of it was a sense of alienation from people my own age who had a different experience than I did. And my inability to express what that difference was. And so instead of even trying, I just pulled away. And that that made me into an introvert. And I lived entirely in my books. But that's a lonely feeling. I mean, it's 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 comforting, but it's ultimately lonely. I remember literally finding, <laughs> thinking of the books as my friends. And I could be intimate with them and they could be intimate with me. And I, I read a book a day like because uh, I was so hungry for that kind of friendship. And I liked the ability to be seen, to see and be seen on stage without really having done it. I don't know what it is that attracted to me being on stage other than the fact that my mother, my mother trained to be an actress and my mother and I were very close, especially after the death of dad and the boys. And in some ways I wasn't doing it for her, but I saw her as my example for everything. And she talked about it so glowingly and with such love of the theater that I, I thought I want to do that. And also kind of what saved me was comedy because after dad and the boys died, what I would do, I'd read all the time. But when my mom said that the lights had to be off, I would, I would turn the volume on my speaker really low and I would listen to comedy albums before I went to bed. So I, ha I had this little secret thing in my heart where I wanted to go do that. I wanted to do what Cosby was doing. I wanted to do what George Carlin was doing or Steve Martin was doing. And I secretly admired them more than any other performers. But I didn't, what, what, oh, listen, I'm a kid in South Carolina. How does somebody become, what's it mean to be a comedian? How do you do that? I didn't know. And it wasn't until I saw, Sondheim's Sunny in the Park with George, where Mandy is singing the character George is talking about putting it together and, you know, uh, looking through the world of a hat like a window from this world to that. The idea that there's this whole other world and whole other sense of freedom and expression that I thought, I want to go do that. I literally read my mom the lyrics to finishing a hat and said, I don't know how and I don't know in what way, but I have to go do this. And she was perfectly happy for me to go try. And then I met other people who were just as damaged as I was, who also wanted to do it. And they became my family as well. Paul Danello, Amy Sedaris, many other people, but those two particularly. And I, I, I fell in love with the love that I felt from them and the sense of camaraderie, of, of failing together. And that little death that happens when you die on stage and yet you're not really dead. And that somehow was related to my morbid fascination with death at the same time, based upon the death that I've experienced in my family. And ultimately, your question is, if you're an introvert, why are you a comedian? I don't know. I don't really know. I'm literally in real time trying to pick through it right now because somebody can suffer tragedy and not become a comedian. And somebody can suffer tragedy and become a comedian. And I cannot begin to tell you what the difference is. But I can tell you that all those things had something to do with me wanting to be on stage. And wanting to to make something beautiful that would be good for other people. Um, well, if that's off the cuff, that that's a hell of an off the cuff answer. So, <laughs> I got to say, I was like, it's pretty good. I, you did not make me regret asking 
that question. Though, again, admittedly, those are the things you ask at the beginning and not necessarily at the end. Well, I don't think I could have given you that answer. I don't think I could have given you the answer at the beginning. Okay. Make me feel better. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll accept it. All right. Uh, very quickly, before we get you out of here, it's a game I play with all my guests, Stephen. I call it This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. Can and as someone who is a late night host, you know that games and bits... It's what we do. So um, it's very, it's very easy. Two choices. You pick one. That's just the way it goes. Don't try to create a third choice. Don't, don't reason out of it. Like this is to put you on the spot. I understand completely. I ask a series of questions to some of my guests. And one of the questions is apples or oranges. That's it. That's the question. And you have to choose. Exactly. And there's a right answer, by the way, but go ahead. It's apples, right? Yes. Okay. okay. I was like, all right. It's <laughs> apples. You can't put peanut butter on an orange. Yeah, thank you. All right. Uh, first up, uh, Robertson Davies or Larry Niven? I know these are two of your favorite authors. Uh, I'll go with Larry just for loyalty's sake. <laughs> but you sweat. He was there when I needed him. No one had to assign Larry to me. Someone had to assign Robertson Davies as much as I love him. Now, did you appear on The Office or did you write for The Office? No, I appeared on The Office. I did. I, I showed I, I, I appeared via video link, actually, as Broccoli Rab. That That's it. Here's the trivia. I've never seen my appearance. No, but were you were you someone that watched the show? Not much, actually. Not much, actually, because its height was at the same time I was doing the Colbert Report. I watched almost no t- like I miss like I, I I I'm just now catching up on like Community and stuff because like when it was when those shows were at the height, I was at the, my busiest on the old show, which took like an, another gear for me. So I didn't watch much TV. I mean, I know it. I love it. It's fantastic. I just don't have a, an encyclopedic knowledge of it. We'll see. I mean, that almost ruins this, this or that which was Dwight or Michael Scott. I know Steve Carell is a good friend of yours. <laughs> Michael Scott. Just based off that. Yeah. No, right? listen, uh, okay. like Rain does an amazing job, but I, I, I also know Steve's heart in many ways. And I think it's a beautiful, it's always comedic, but just a beautiful and vulnerable, strangely vulnerable performance. I, I really love it. Yeah. No, it, it, it is. He's one of the best television characters uh, of all time, for sure. Um, what was a cooler tribute to you? The treadmill on the International uh, Space Station being named after you or four animal species being named after you? Listen, it's it's uh, hard. I mean, the animal species are are forever. The treadmill will eventually burn up on reentry. Uh, but as as an old sci fi fan here. The fact that there's a, my name and a cartoon of me on a treadmill that astronauts actually use on a daily basis, that's about as cool as it can get, man. That is pretty cool. Your only in Monroe inter- Eminem interview or your Joe Biden interview that you had uh, toward the beginning of your tenure here as late night host? Oh, this is the toughest one. I'm going to say the Joe Biden interview because that was a different kind of interview that I'd never done before. That and and he actually gave me by willing to be uh, himself and vulnerable in that moment. He demanded of me that I be myself at a time when I really needed to learn what that was. And it was an honor that he would be willing to share that with me in that moment. And um, I'll, I'll never forget it. The, so I got I got I got to pick that one. The Eminem one I love because. It's one of the craziest interviews I've ever done. And it's long. It's 25 minutes or something. And quick story about that. So we go to do that because my 
head writer at the time, he's now a co-exec for the show, a guy named Opus Moreski, we're like, how do we do this first show, man? There's all this pressure on the first show. And he goes, why do we, why, why can't we just go do a first show someplace? Why don't we just go public access someplace and just do a show and see if anybody notices? And I went, oh, I love it, man. I love it. And so uh, we found, I said, it has to be someplace near enough to some metropolitan center that there might be a guest who would drive over. And I said, but I want it to be a small, I want it to be a small town someplace in the Midwest. So we, we find Monroe. The show's called Only Monroe. It's perfect. We go out there. I said to them, what are your ratings? Like, what do you normally get? And they said, ah, 12. And, and I said, really? Just 12,000 people? And they said, no, 12. The ratings for the show are like 12. Was there, and they weren't joking. They were like, it's about 12 people. It's a small town. And so I, I said, I love it. I couldn't, I couldn't love it more. And we're not going to tell anybody that we did it. And it's going to be Marshall Mathers. And we'll do an Only in Monroe, which was a segment they already had on the show, Only in Monroe. Like, we'll do their community calendar. We'll try to settle a fight between two people. We went and ate at a restaurant in town afterwards that we had talked about on the show that night. So we go when they're going to broadcast. It's like 11 o'clock at night that night. And we're all in the control room of this, this, uh, public access and we, we roll it in because we've crashed this edit and we roll it in and I'm looking at Twitter because we haven't told anybody I'm looking at Twitter because surely like somebody's going to see it and tell somebody and holy shit it's it's Eminem and it's Colbert and what the hell is this and it's going to go bah, 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 bah. it's going to propagate like truly viral we wanted to see if something could truly be viral not viral like we're planting it nor look just we don't do anything does anything happen with this does it self-replicate and the whole show's over, and I've been watching Twitter the whole time, and there's nothing. No mention of me, no mention of Eminem, nothing. It's over. And I looked around the room, and I counted, and I went, oh, shit. There are 12 people in this room. We're it. We're the 12 that watched it tonight. <laughs> but by 1 o'clock the next day, somebody had figured it out, and there were like 4 million views. Like, it, it took off. But that was a crazy night. Now, but Eminem, he knew the gist of it, correct? Yeah, we'd never met, but he knew that I was in character, but his reactions are whatever he did. Like, that wasn't scripted. That's just him and me. He knew we'd never met, and we didn't talk until we were on stage. Because I don't, I like to just do it. That was it. Like, that was, you, you're seeing us meet. Like, all of that just played out the way it played out. Well, it's funny because his timing is so good. Because when you asked him about, like, not cursing, and he's like, yeah, rappers, don't fucking curse. <laughs> it's like it kills me every time it's so good it's so very good um what's interesting is like people don't know this or maybe they forget this is like you had made the decision to retire colbert the character like long like before you got the late night gig at least that's the impression that i got is that that was that was not contingent upon no, it wasn't. I had never listened. I I had never intended to be. I had never intended to be a talk show host in any way. I, I'm a trained actor, and you know, I, I then I moved into like pure comedy for for you, you know for a couple of decades. But I never, I never in my mind thought anybody would ask me to actually be a talk show host. The Colbert Report was, it was a, it was a, it was a scene. It was a sketch. It was a, it was a nine and a half, almost ten year scene that i was doing the whole thing was a field report for the daily show that's why the very last line of the colbert report was john saying thank you for that report Stephen." that's it because i was like i want to drive home i followed john. my show started after the daily show it ended before the daily show because i was completely self-contained within 
the world that John had created. I was still one of his correspondents in a way. And I had done it for meow, meow, you know, number of years, I guess I'd done it for seven plus years. And I thought, you know, I still like doing this. I should stop while I still like it. A lot of people do these things too long and it was up to me, you know, like everything was fine with the network, but I, I remember saying to my assistant, Amy Cole, I said, Hey, what's the last show in 2014? And she goes, it's December 18th. And I went, Okay. And I started in my mind writing the last show. And so that was, that was before 2012 was over. And then I don't know when did Dave, Dave didn't leave to didn't say him say he was leaving until 2014. I was already out the door. I actually, I had a whole plan, man. I had a whole plan. I was going to take my character. I was going to put him in a narrative. I was going to take some time off, create a new narrative show, like a, 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 a episodic show and put him in that. You know, and and he's the same guy, but no longer to camera, just the life that he's living after that. That was what I was going to do with it. And then out of nowhere, hey, would you know, when he goes, are you interested? I'm like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, <laughs> who wants to take over for Dave? You know, that's not easy. And my agent said, no one will ever ask again. I went, I'll take it. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Like, how many like, times are you asked like, to do this? Like, I just want to, he's like, they'll never ask you again. And uh, I don't think, I don't know is a good answer. <laughs> Great agenting right there. Great agenting. <laughs> and I said, I'm, but I'm an actor, man. I'm not, I've never been me. And he goes, yeah, you can always, you know, do this and do something else afterwards, but you'll never do it if you don't say yes now. And I went, oh, that's actually right. And I, I got a great agent. Is there any part of you that wonders sometimes uh, how that character might have aged today? Ooh, I tell you, there's part of me that's glad I don't do him. That I don't do him in the same form. I mean, I might do him again someday, but not in that form. Because I remember, like, we used to talk about Glenn Beck. And then, I mean, that's weird to even say his name. But we used to talk about Glenn Beck when he first really hit. And I went, man, that's a tough guy to leapfrog. That's a tough behavior to model. Like... Because I really model behavior. We would almost always try to show what's actually happening in the world. And then I would model that behavior and show what the logical extension of that behavior would be. Like, that's where the comedy was. And I remember, like, I don't really like modeling him. Because the logical extension gets super dark. And uh, because my character was uh, well-intentioned was the number one thing. He should be well-intentioned, poorly informed, high status idiot. Those were the four things that I would always say. Remember, he's well-intentioned because sometimes people would try to write, people would submit to write and I'd go like, oh, but no, that's malicious. He's not malicious. He's well-intentioned. And who would be, the model would have to be related to Trump now, but Trump is everything that character was, but with no good intentions. And so I wouldn't want to play him because it would remove that most important thing about that character was that the reason why you didn't want to snap it off and say, I don't want to watch this asshole, or at least some people didn't, is because his his heart was in the right place. He just had he was not interested in any information to inform his his intention. And so I would I I, I was grateful to not. There have been times I'm like, Jesus, why do I have to have a show tonight? Because this is what the national conversation is about. Going back to your earlier question, but I've never I've I immediately thought I'm so glad I don't do this character anymore. He just doesn't fit the times. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, it, it is funny because at the time it was, it was, you know, brilliant. It was obviously a parody. And now because you look around and the field is literally littered with people who are yeah, really yes, like yes, this, yes. you're like, oh my God. <laughs> it's just, it was prophetic, unfortunately, in many ways. But except for it's, uh, the the character was much more well-intentioned than the people that we see today. Well, um, listen, Stephen, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I know we've been trying to do this for a little while, so I'm very appreciative of your time. And uh, like everybody else, man, I can't wait to um, you're back and, and in front of people because um, that would be one of those things where it's like, ah, oh, we're finally back <laughs> just as a nation. So you're a big part of that for sure, of our healing and growth process. Well, thank you for saying that. And uh, thank you for having me on. I wanted to talk to you for a long time and I'm glad this is the first way we do it. Yeah. And and hopefully I'll do something cool that will get me back on your show. <laughs> I'll do something <laughs> that'll make me more famous that will get me back on your show. Maybe we'll we'll talk when my memoir drops next next year. <laughs> I think the next time we have it on the show, uh, the, the fact that you and I just had this conversation is going to make it even better than last time. Correct. We'll need no warm up. We could just get right to it. So all good. Um, Steve is getting out of here. Uh, you guys know what's coming up next. Fuck it. I'm bothered. What I'm about to say is not any kind of commentary or criticism for those who may have made a different choice. But I have gone out of my way not to watch any of the Derek Chauvin trial. Derek Chauvin, of course, is the former Minneapolis police officer who is currently standing trial for the murder of George Floyd. Although Derek Chauvin's defense is trying to make this the George Floyd trial. And that's exactly why I didn't want to watch any of it. I knew it would leave me in a constant state of fuck it, I'm botheredness. I've kept up with the trial by reading news stories every day. And plug alert. Please check out my girl, Suzette Hackney's coverage of the trial. She's a national columnist for USA Today. She's been writing brilliant stuff. Check it out. She's a must read for me about this trial. Uh, Anyway, there was a tweet from someone named Carol Leonard, who, far as I know, isn't a celebrity. And if she is, I apologize for not knowing who she is. And I came across this tweet and I haven't been able to get it out of my mind. Carol tweeted, how do you know the U.S. is a failed state? I'll go first. We're holding a four week trial for a murder everybody saw. Beyond just not wanting to see the video, because to date, I've still never seen it. Besides not wanting to feel the trauma of what happened all over again. I also didn't want to spend weeks being gaslit by a process that was designed to remind black people that we aren't worthy of humanity, let alone justice. Based off the arguments the defense has presented. George Floyd suffering from drug addiction meant that he was destined to die no matter what. This is seriously what they presented as a reason why George Floyd is no longer with us. It wasn't Derek Chauvin leaning on George Floyd's neck for nearly 10 minutes that killed him. It was drugs. Another insulting argument that has been presented by the defense is that bystanders who watched Derek Chauvin kill George Floyd in broad daylight, some of which were kids agitated Derek Chauvin and influenced him to kill George Floyd. Chauvin's attorney, Eric Nelson, told the jury that the people who began to crowd around the scene hurled insults and were aggressive. And while it wasn't flat out said, we know the direction this is going because it's been said and insinuated so many times. 
in other police brutality cases. The old, but he was afraid for his life defense. Even though whatever alleged threat the crowd posed, it wasn't enough to make Derek Chauvin stop killing George Floyd. I've had so many people in my friend circle and even other colleagues of mine in this business express a sense of foreboding about this trial's outcome. Because we saw what happened with Rodney King and the lack of justice there. We saw what happened with Michael Brown and how no charges were filed against the officer who killed him. We saw what happened with Elijah McCain, where none of the officers who killed him have been criminally charged, even though an independent report revealed that the police lied about their encounter with Elijah McClain, which led to him being killed. They claimed it was a violent confrontation and it wasn't. And again, no justice. Black people in this country are so accustomed to the system and the culture of white supremacy protecting itself that there is understandable fear that the outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial will be another heartbreaking result. Even though black people historically and presently experience disappointment in the criminal justice system all the time, if Derek Chauvin isn't convicted, this is going to hit so much differently than the other instances of injustice. What happened to George Floyd impacted the world, the world. His death brought us to a different inflection point in this country. If Chauvin isn't convicted, or if he is, and his sentencing doesn't reflect the seriousness and the brutality of what he did, this will be another case of Lucy removing the football right before Charlie Brown tries to kick it. Because despite all that has happened, all the injustice, betrayal, brutality that black folks have experienced in America, the reason we continue to be outraged is because we still care. We still believe that one day all we've been through will have been worth it. We believe that one day the system will work for everybody. So even though on some level, none of us would be surprised if justice isn't served for George Floyd, that doesn't mean it wouldn't hurt and break our hearts. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Berner is our technical director and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, supervising producer is Jifa Yador and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Peep Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends.